So for the last several weeks, we've been um, in the season of Lent going through and, and hearing um, from the cross, examining Jesus' last words uh, from the cross because um, I think a good way to, to know someone um, is to listen to what they say. And particularly a good way to know uh, someone is to know their last words. And we get the benefit of the Gospels of having a bunch of different accounts of the things that Jesus is saying and doing and, and bringing um, kind of to a climax his entire life and career uh, from the cross. So um, I'm going to invite Brandon to come up and read uh, for us. Uh, we're in John's Gospel. We've been in Luke, and now we're in John's Gospel in chapter 19. And uh, Brandon will read our third word. You, you can... Just talk loudly. So I'm really interested in this um, passage in some family resemblances. Those things that you learn from your family, they, you, you don't necessarily automatically have to be given them, but they, they manifest themselves in your, in your life. And, and it's probably even more interesting to ask like, a really close friend or a spouse what these are, because you, you tend to think of the good things. And, uh, um, they can see mother-in-laws better than you can. Uh, but So I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about what things I've gotten from my parents, um, and w- what things my brother has, and what things I'm giving to my kids. And I, I think of my dad, um, and also things I actively kind of consciously admire. So like my dad is this like steadfast uh, man, and he's willing to serve. He's a servant. He's kind of a quiet servant. You know, his love language is service, right? Um, especially his wife, who is not always easy to serve. And my dad is like, like kind of a sensitive guy, too. Um, and I think of my mom, and she is like kind of irrational in everything. Irrational in her love of people, irrational in her like sports fanaticism. And I think I got a little bit of that. And she's got a temper that I think my brother got more than me. And, and I think about my brother and, and his kind of unswerving loyalty like that he got from my dad and also that temper, again. Um, I think of things that I've, I've given Noah. Uh, obviously, dance moves. Um, <laughs> did anyone see? She conked her head on the communion table. And in this corner, it says, it's written, and I'm sure it was very serious when it was written, it says, the small stuff, the things that you're going to leave before the cross. And Rach turns to me and she says, it's kind of ironic that the small stuff got her. So <laughs> she had like a charcoal mark on her face. Um, but I think Noah, when I look at Noah, she has this like, 
just want and need and ability to just connect with people. We were talking about like if if we can give Noah um, exactly what she needs and wants, it would be the ability to be heard, right? That's why she talks constantly. That's why she repeats herself. But at its core, she wants to be heard, and I think that's because she wants to connect. And Titus has this tenderness um, that even Noah doesn't have, um, and that I'd like to, that I hope that came from from us. Um, I think just because you're in your family doesn't mean you necessarily get these things. It doesn't mean you necessarily want these things. It doesn't necessarily mean that you get along. Um, we, I'd like, I think that we have a pretty good family. I think my wife has a pretty good family, but when I look at her and her sisters, they're very different people, and people that probably wouldn't be friends in, real, in quote, real life, you know? And, and, and a lot of you probably have that experience, too. To take a second, find someone by you, maybe someone that you're not here with, and, and tell them what you got from your family. Something that's just like in your blood that when people see you guys, um, they know like, oh, you're your father's son or your mother's daughter. T take a second, do that. Or maybe do these, do some of these over potluck. Do you see the can of worms this opens? Like, it's really easy to talk about your family. All right, guys. So we look today at this scene from the cross, these words from the cross, when Jesus is able to look to his mom and say, behold your son. And look to this disciple that he loves and says, behold your mother. There's this making of a family, making of a new family at the foot of the cross. So it's interesting when we look into the account, we, we kind of see who is there, who the characters are, what their profiles are that are, as the passage says, near the cross of Jesus. And first we have Mary, and, 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 you know, we might expect a mom to be at the, at the end of her son's life. We'd hope that would be the case, but, but the more and more I thought about it this week, the, the kind of deeper I got into the character of Mary and trying to understand what, who she is and, and what she must be feeling. This is, this is the Mary who was a, a pregnant teen, um, and she was unmarried at the time, <laughs> and inevitably had to deal with some of that suspicion, some, like that cloud over her. This is a Mary who um, likely was, was widowed sometime in Jesus' late teens and, and early adulthood. Why isn't Joseph here? Why is the last time we hear of Joseph when Jesus is 12 at the temple? Most commentators say it's because he probably died. 
So pregnant teen, a widow, um, through the gospel accounts, when Jesus' ministry is really picking up steam, we often see Mary kind of on the sideline, certainly dealing with some of the scrutiny of that sort of public career. Um, and even like in stories of like uh, the wedding at Cana in John 2, we, we have Jesus kind of kind of even casting her aside and saying, woman, what, what do I have to do with you? Um, <clears throat> we also have this Mary who's now um, witnessing the public execution of her child. It's, it's a, a pretty tragic and remarkable life. It, if I had to characterize Mary as anything, I, I, I would characterize her um, as obedient, right? Because Mary, uh, as we've heard her story, it started with, with that pregnancy. And when God shows up, when the angel shows up and talks to Mary, she says, here I am. And she says, that your will may be done. It, it, I, I couldn't help but see parallels with a lot of people in the Bible, but, but especially with Abraham. We might even consider Mary a new Abraham. Because when Abraham um, was there and God showed up and, and said, Abraham, Abraham responded with a obedient, here I am. When, when God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to test you by taking Isaac up to Mount Moriah and killing your only child and, and being witness to it, Abraham said, here I am. And now here Mary is witnessing the death of her child. Also at the cross, we have Mary of Clopas, <clears throat> which is probably Jesus' aunt, Joseph, Jesus' dad's brother's wife. And isn't that how the you know, family relations go? Second cousins and great aunts. Um, we also have Mary of Magdala, and her story is, is also remarkable. Uh, in Luke 8, we have a story of seven demons cast out of Mary. Um, we, we have all these stories um, and all these speculations. Uh, the gospel writers kind of um, are somewhat kind to her and tell all these stories from a little bit of a side angle to not completely implicate her, but she's generally known as a woman of ill repute. But her place at the foot of the cross and her place after the foot of the cross is, is of the first witness to testify to the risen Jesus. Augustine called her the apostle to the apostles. And then finally, the, the last character that John records at the foot of the cross is the beloved disciple, the one who Jesus loves. And he's kind of a hero of John's community. He's singled out as a particular object of Jesus' love. He's kind of the favorite, the teacher's pet or something. But he's not given an identity. A lot of people think it's probably John. Um, Nate did a really good job of capturing it in his art today. The kind of iconography for the gospel uh, writer, the evangelist John, is always this eagle with, with, a, um, with a scroll. Um, John is probably also the writer of the Johannine epistles, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. But he uses this device, and it's this really neat tool, and he doesn't name this disciple because this disciple that Jesus loves is really anyone who comes near to Jesus, who 
tries to follow Jesus. Nicodemus at night is a, a disciple who Jesus loves. The Samaritan woman at the well is the one who Jesus loves, forgiven and healed and renewed by Jesus. In fact, when we come to Jesus and we seek discipleship, we're beloved disciples. He's written us into the story. We're that disciple and we're given a mother. We're given a mother who, by God's grace, formed a family through obedience, through her availability for God to work. So as I was looking at this story, I tried to get as simple as possible of what this story is telling us. And I think it's telling us three things. I think it's telling us, first and foremost, that Jesus loves you. This is something that Noah reminds me every night. Um, She gets some of the words wrong. Sometimes it's the Bible loves you so at the end, but we'll straighten that out eventually. But this story of Jesus from the cross, these words, here is your mother, here is your son, tell us of Jesus' love for us, that he, even in the midst of great suffering, the end of his life, he would care for us. He would care for his mother, um, who I guess he's probably obligated to care for his mother. Even heathens do that. Um, But he'd also care for his disciple that he'd make a way, and that it'd be this mutually beneficial way for both of them. That means for us, is like 1 Peter 5 says, that we can cast all our anxieties on Jesus because he cares for us. There's a a tenderness and a, a personalness that Jesus has experienced pain, has experienced suffering. We can't outsuffer him. We can't have more pain than he's experienced. And even in the midst of that, he has his eyes out. He's got his eyes at the base of the cross taking care of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. We see that Jesus' love um, inside of Jesus' mission is kind of autobiographical, right? You, you know, throughout the Gospels, we have, and, and really throughout the entire like, prophetic uh, tradition, we have this provision for orphans and widows. Jesus tells this story in Matthew 5, uh, 25 about the king who says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And we see here being, him being visited by his followers, including his own family, as he's imprisoned, as he's executed. We see Jesus autobiographically living out what his brother James wrote, that true religion, that our God the Father accepts as pure and faultless because it looks after orphans and widows in their distress. His mom, the widow, himself, um, in some sense, an orphan. So we learn from the scene at the cross, from Jesus' words, here is your mother, here is your son, that Jesus deeply, tenderly loves us. We also learn that Jesus loves us through people. It's not some kind of hypothetical, disembodied thing, that how God loves you when, you when you tell someone Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you through people, and, and even you can make it even more specific, through a people. At the moment of Jesus' death, he not only cares, but he reveals just how important his family and their relationships to be established are to him. I'd imagine 
his words are at a minimum. He's only going to talk about and, and spend time on the things that really matter and, and the things that really matter to him at this moment are how John and Mary are going to relate to each other and, and how that sets a stage for us to relate to each other. And, and a, a lot of commentators only kind of skim the surface and say that these words are just about Jesus providing some social security to his mom, taking care of his mom. But I think in John, in particular, of all the gospel writers, we we got to know that there's no throwaway lines. Everything kind of means something. Everything's for a purpose in John. So when we look right above these words, and there's this whole exchange, there's this game going on underneath the cross. In, in the passage right before this, there's kind of a game going on above the cross. You know, Pilate writes, this is king of the Jews, and they say, no, he says he's king of the Jews. Write that, and he says, ah, I've written what I've written. And so there's this kind of game happening. And below the cross, there's this game happening. They're rolling dice for Jesus' clothes. Sure, this is to fulfill um, kind of some prophecy regarding the Messiah. Psalm 22, which we'll dig deeper into next week, has a part in it that talks about his clothes, his garments will be divided amongst his enemies. And that's happening here, but there's this interesting note is that where one of the soldiers kind of ironically says, let's not tear it. And John's not, not just putting that in there because he, he heard it and he thought it was cool. Generally, that's, that's accepted as, as, a, as a hint, as a clue that, that Jesus' family, those at the foot of the cross, should not be torn apart, even as Jesus' own body is being torn apart. A few chapters earlier in his high priestly prayer for his followers in John 19, he, he talks about the unity that he hopes for his people. They'd be one, he says, and this is a paraphrase. I'm praying not only for them, but also those who will believe in me because of them and their witness about me. The goal is for all of them to become of one heart and mind, just kind of like we read in the Philippians 2 passage. Of one heart and mind, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, so they might be of one heart and mind with us. Then the world might believe that you, in fact, sent me the same glory you gave me, I gave them, so they'd be unified and together as we are, I and them and you and me. Then they'd be mature in this oneness and give the godless world evidence that you've sent me and loved them in the same way that you've loved me. This seamless garment shows this seamless church, this seamless family. Because let's be honest, in all actuality, John and Mary, apart from Jesus saying this, once Jesus is out of the picture, what do they really have in common? They're not blood relatives. And, pro you know, generally the case with, some, with something this tragic, this traumatic, they probably don't even want to see each other because seeing each other would remind them of Jesus dying. What do they have in common after Jesus? You know, on a lighter note, this is... It's kind of like in, does anyone remember the Seinfeld episode when uh, Jerry like leaves the equation and George and Elaine are just sitting there and they don't have anything to talk about? That like, once Jerry's gone, George and Elaine don't work. You know, like there's not a mutual friendship. We can imagine that being the case with, with John and with Mary. 
But Jesus knows how important it is for that relationship not only to not dissolve, but to be solidified. Here is your mother. Here is your son. And something to think of as we leave here is, you know, who has impacted you that way? Who in, in your life has, has become so important that they're, they're family? Whose love has been so big in your life that it's changed your identity? That, that, that you, you go from a stranger to a brother to them or a sister to them or them to you? Who's done that to you? Who has the Lord brought into your life and made family? And that's the last thing we learn. We, we learn that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you through people. And finally, we learn that Jesus calls you family. Isn't that remarkable? Jesus calls you family. In specific, a family gathered around the cross. In a few minutes, we'll um, share this table and, and we'll get to gather around the cross as a family. Get to spend some time there. Uh, I can think of no more central thing to our our worship than, than that image, that picture, that way to bodily do this. Jesus calls you a family. And this is a major strand in Jesus' ministry. This is one of the things that when, when he does this from the cross, everyone that's been around him for a while can kind of look back in retrospect and say, oh, this is what was happening when, you know, in the beginning of Luke's gospel when it talks about uh, Jesus' biological mom and somewhat biological dad, uh, Joseph, looking frantically for Jesus. Then Meg Hoffman was doing this in the, in the education building, calling James Russell, James Russell this morning. And he, like, there's like three rooms. He was in one of the rooms. But they were doing that, saying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And, um, and he, he looks at them and he says, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? In my about my father's business, again relativizing who his father really is. Or then in Luke eight, during Jesus' ministry, it says his mother came to him and his brothers also. And they were unable to get him because of the crowds, and it was reported to him that your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. And he answered and said to them, "My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it." So I can say this morning that whether you come from a good family and, and you have great connotations with that or, or a bad family, that you know, some people can't even know God as father because of abuse or absence. That your installation, your becoming part of Jesus' family changes all of that. It teaches us what family actually is. Whether you come from a good or bad family, now the cross is your family tree. How about that? The cross is your family tree. Because Jesus has brought you into his family through his faithfulness to God's mission, his God's purpose, relationship with God, and his love for the sake of your faithfulness in love, the obedience shown by Mary, the Belovedness shown by John. 
And God's been doing this all along. This is what God did when he called Abraham and Sarah to start God's family. When he put together Israel to be his faithful people, his family, his kind of plan A for the renewal of this world. And then now it's operative in Jesus as he's reforming Israel around himself and including people that have not been on the inside to, to join with God in the renewal of all these things. To now know God as, as Father. To know each other as brothers and sisters knit together by obedience. By hearing the word of God and doing it. And to know Jesus as an elder brother. The last couple weeks, we've, in Jesus' words, we've seen Jesus as this true elder brother um, from that prodigal story in Luke 15, saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know, know what they do. And today you'll be with me in paradise. These words that, that uh, if go through and, and like do a Google search for prodigal son art. And, and you'll see like Rembrandt is, is a really good one, or Margaret Adams Parker has a um, reconciliation statue at the Divinity School. And almost all of them have, have kind of the older brother off to the side, kind of arms crossed, you know, looking the other way or feeling jilted. And, and that character's there for us because it, it kind of hints just by its negative at, at who Jesus is and, and, and what Jesus is for us. We find him this week forming a family around him. Uh, Tim Keller says a really cool thing in Luke 15 on this about, uh, about the father's acceptance of that prodigal. The, the father's remaking his son his son. And he says, how do we get the father's robe? Because Jesus was stripped naked on the cross. How do we get the father's feast? Because Jesus took the cup of wrath that we might have a cup of joy. He's our true elder brother, and he says so. Hebrews 2 says, Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are in the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. Scripture also picks up on this theme. Paul writes about the family of God being a household. In Ephesians 2, he says, You're no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens of God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as that chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Paul also uses the language of adoption, how we're brought in and we become sons and daughters, children of God, brothers and sisters, and, and that that bond is somehow stronger even than our biology. Rachel and I had these good friends and actually a mentor of mine and, that we knew from college, and recently they adopted a little girl. And the amount of their anticipation and preparation for this little girl to come that, that it was no less maybe even more than than having a, a, a baby inside of her belly you know the um, how they had to prepare mentally and 
emotionally, how they had to prepare financially and, and even spatially making room for her. And now that she's there, she's, she's no less their daughter than, than if she had been birthed by them. And the same with us, our adoption into this family of God. Here is your mother. Here is your son. So how do we respond to this? What do we take from this? I think we respond by kind of stepping in the shoes of these people at the cross. First, by being at the foot of the cross together, gathering around our family tree. But also by stepping in the shoes of Mary and her obedience, her availability for God to work. When God comes calling, Mary says, here I am. To step in the shoes of John, who's known not by anything about himself, not even his own name, but by how much Jesus loves him. What if that was like the primary identifier for you? Beloved of Jesus, the one who Jesus loves. And what if the primary identifier for all of us was our nearness to each other in that love, our nearness to the cross? I think it also, what we take from this is, is a certain expectation. If, if God can build and grow his family. Every time like a baby gets born in the church, the, the common joke is like, growing the church the old-fashioned way. And that's kind of true, but it's also not true at all. Like That's not the picture that the Bible gives us of how God's family grows. God's family grows by people believing, repenting, and being obedient to his mission in this world, by being baptized and, and being grafted into true Israel and Christ. So I think that generates an expectation for us as we look around we, that we see family, that this be a family meal and that downstairs our potluck meals be family meals. Like they have that kind of um, boisterousness of like a holiday family meal, hopefully without the drama of a holiday family meal. But also that, that we might look around with that expectation and say a year from now, like this family should be different and experience growth in our intimacy together and also growth in our numbers that we should look different. We should have people that aren't biologically or, or personality-wise the same as us because God has brought them into a family together. That our unity, that, that seamless garment be forged in the, in the love and in the blood of Jesus. What we take from here is also like these little kudos for how we, we're doing this and how God's doing this in us. Like, like how, like I look around and, and picturing this family as a church, I, I see like so many spiritual aunts and uncles to my kids. Like I see like um, singles and young, young couples that don't have kids yet, like really stepping in and, and serving our children, being um, their force and, and helping uh, Rach and I, I, I. This is like really widespread, and, and I thank you for it. I see this in the way we sent Bradley and Julie and Josiah out as family. We, it was like a going away party. So the challenge is, is to continue to grow in this identity, to continue to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that 
our eyes see each other as brothers and sisters, as uh, aunts and uncles and mothers and fathers in the faith, all with Jesus as our elder brother, as God as our father. That, that we live that kind of family life generously, and concretely, and, and authentically, and, and that we're united in all of this. Here is your mother. Here is your son. Pray with me. Father God, um, we thank you that you're the giver of good gifts, that you um, that all blessings come from you. We thank you in particular for the blessing of your son who brought us into your family by his blood on the cross. We thank you for these words that, that show us how strong and truthful and creative and generative Jesus' death and risen life are for us, your church. We're challenged by the call to unity. We're challenged by the um, call to, to look around and where we would normally see strangers or even enemies to see brothers and sisters because of you, because of your son. Lord, continue to knit us together as your family, a family of obedience, a family of grace, a family that's just marked by how much you love us and that you love us just so that you gave your son for us. Father, be near to us. Draw us near to you, especially in this time of conversation and, and confession. Uh, renew us, renew our spirits where we're run down, where we're um, trying so hard to be something that you've already made us. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.